Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome to Conversations. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today my friend Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review for, what, 17, 18 years? It's hard to believe. To add it up. Yeah, right. It's aged you. Editing the <laughs> Weekly Standard for 20 years has aged, aged me more, though. You seem to be perpetually useful, youthful, so that's good. So, you, And you're more youthful today, right, after last... So we're talking, just to be clear, we're talking Wednesday, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, it's less than 24 hours after Iowa. Have we dodged the bullet? It's a major relief, and the polls were just wrong. And we were told the Des Moines Register polls, the gold standard, at least always gets the order right, and it was wrong. As I told you before we started taping, I was out in Iowa last week, and when I was there Friday evening, I was in a hotel in Des Moines where there are a lot of ordinary uh, Iowans in the lobby, and right. every single one I met said that they were voting for Marco Rubio. So I thought, you know, this was great repertorial uh, uh, footwork on my part, and I've discovered this Rubio surge, and then the one register poll came out and showed no surge whatsoever. So I'd kind of discounted it and was preparing for the worst in, in Iowa. I do think people are premature in writing Donald Trump's obituary. He was never a natural fit for Iowa, even though it was an embarrassing loss for him, and he could have slipped into third if there, it had been held a day later. He's probably, he lines up much better in New Hampshire, where he may still be a very potent force. So the special issue of National View, which I was pleased to contribute a few words to, uh, against Trump remains relevant and important in your, in your, in your eyes. Well, I mean, let's go back to the beginning. Sure. Why, why against Trump? Why? I mean, there are 10 people running, and he's the one you single out uh, for, for sort of uh, what some people, what some critics call excommunication or, uh, or a pretty big assault. Well, he seemed a unique threat and seemed to have really the potential, still potentially does, of distorting conservatism. And whenever National Review makes a big statement in the post-Buckley era, you'll, you'll hear people say, well, Buckley never would have done that or he wouldn't have supported that. And a lot of times we just don't really know because, as you know, Bill had such an idiosyncratic mind. But in opposition to Donald Trump, I'm absolutely convinced he would be there with us because National Review has always stood up against this kind of crude populism. And there have been various iterations of it, obviously, you know, across the decades, from George Wallace to Pat Buchanan to Ross Perot. And I actually went back and looked at Buckley columns that he wrote after a firing line exchange with George Wallace. And this was part of the Buckley industry, right? You'd, you'd have a, a TV interview and right. then you'd write a couple columns off of it. But it's fascinating because it opened with Bill saying to George Wallace, well, what do you make of the fact that 200 prominent conservatives in human events say you're not a conservative and you're not worthy of conservative support. And it just it seems so apt to this moment because George Wallace says, I don't know any prominent conservatives. I don't care about prominent conservatives. I just go straight to the people. And they, they went back and forth with Bill hitting Wallace on his statism. And then at the end, one of Wallace's clinching arguments was, you know what, Buckley, I won the television poll at at WIIT TV in Pittsburgh, you know, shows I'm much more popular than any politician in America, which is obviously that's been Trump's rejoinder to almost everything is that he's leading in the, the polls. And I guess that's just that's just the nature of the, the beast in the terms of Trump. But I've been surprised at how many Trump supporters and just pundits and analysts who've been mesmerized by the polls. A lot of the, the blowback when we did this, the pushback was like, can't you read the polls? This is futile. He's at 30%. Everyone should just surrender. 
And so what he, yeah, so Buckley did the hard work of pushing back. Well, Wallace, I guess, was in the Democratic primary, so it was a little different, I suppose, though, and then when he's an independent, Buchanan, Perot, a little, maybe more analogous to Trump, but, well, let's go backwards. What do you make of the pushback? I mean, that is, it doesn't seem very hard to make the case that Donald Trump, for a conservative magazine to say Donald Trump is not a conservative right. as conservatism is defined for the last several decades. I don't see why that should be particularly controversial. Um, were you surprised that it was as controversial as it was? And yeah, I, I think a big element of it, it came when he was still on the ascendancy. And if we had published this week, it probably wouldn't have generated the, the kind of reaction it did. And it's very notable that in all the commentary generated by it, no one has actually uh, written any argument that I've come across that says, no, you're actually wrong, this guy is a conservative. I think the critique that has some force is we need his people in the party. And that's something I think you know, uh, both of us agree right. on and the editors of National Review agree on. So uh, for our, we don't want him to be nominated, but we think it would also be a really unfortunate result if he's defeated and then everyone goes on as if nothing has happened and doesn't learn anything from this episode. So what's happened? What, what should we learn? I guess that is a big question. Well, one, immigration needs to be taken really seriously. And on and that, National Review has been a critic of a more open borders, Wall Street Journal type yeah, conservatism for a long, long time. Yeah. And it's not just illegal immigration. Trump, and sort of fitfully, because he's not really very serious or consistent almost on any policy question, but has also pointed to the, the downside consequences of legal immigration and continued low-skilled immigration and the economic effect it has in the country. And Ted Cruz has picked up this argument as reversed field. He used to be a supporter of even uh, higher levels of low-skilled immigration. And we think the party needs to reverse field on that issue. And then another big nut to crack. Do you think the issue is immigration, or is it that immigration as a sort of symbol for working class and middle class Americans having economic troubles? I mean, I think that it's both. I think it is immigration as immigration, but it also ties into this blue collar discontent. And you guys at The Standard and also at National Review, we've tried to push the party in directions to uh, adopt an economic program that will address the discontents of these voters. And in some surveys, the single most pessimistic group in America is working class whites, more pessimistic than blacks and Hispanics, which is just astonishing given you know the historical historic discrimination right. faced by blacks and blacks still uh, lag in all these socio socioeconomic indicators, but it's working class whites that um, uh, feel the most pessimistic about the American dream, and clearly Trump is tapping into something there that shouldn't be ignored. And conservatives, you think, ha can have or do have an agenda for those, for those people? I mean... I think developing one, but I think one of the big questions that that's open this year is, okay, we have tax credits for working families. We have our, our various health care schemes, some of which depend also on tax credits. Right. We have some higher education reforms. But how do you actually make those things cut and, and have an impact for these voters? Trump really doesn't have any agenda for them except for higher tariffs and building a wall. Otherwise, his economic policy, at least as exemplified by his tax plan, is just traditional cookie-cutter Republican economics. It's just a version of the souped-up version of the Bush tax plan. But how do you, um, how much of the Trump phenomenon is just affect? And does it matter 
that you have an agenda. And if you do, do you need to adopt something of, of Trump's rough edge to actually cut through to these voters? I don't know. I mean, do you think how much of it is, I guess, is a substantive challenge to conservatism to think about policies? Uh, how much of it is a question of tone and presentation and, and so forth? I mean, are we at a, a, is there a genuine crisis of conservative policy, do you think, to some degree? I mean, that the... Um, it's, Trump just sort of seems to be outside policy to right. some extent, right? And so it seems to be um, the, the affect and manner of communicating are very important. And I've just noticed Rubio on this stuff, he's trying to pick up some of what Trump and Cruz have been tapping into. But it's a little awkward because he has such an optimistic, uplifting message. And we, when he first adopted this kind of harsher tone, I think it was two debates ago, and he got a lot of criticism because he didn't sound like Marco Rubio. And I think the problem at the moment is Rubio is the hope and change candidate, and it's clear that Republicans certainly want the change, but at least some right. segment of Republicans don't want the hope. Right. Or they don't think the hope is credible. I think right. They think it yeah. seems like hollow, happy talk. I, I'm struck by that. We also somehow got internalized the notion that Reagan was a, you know, such a happy warrior right. and so upbeat, but in a way that doesn't feel real, you know. It doesn't yeah. seem to, Trump does seem to have more of a sense that we have a real problem out there and yeah. we need to really change things. Right, and real urgency about it. You know, Steve Bannon of Breitbart News um, produced a documentary about Reagan in the Cold War, and he deliberately didn't have Reagan in any of the clips smiling at all. And it was sort of an over-adjustment, of course, because there is that sunny element of Reagan. But it also just get, got to the, the urgency and determination and righteousness that he felt. And you, know, you look at the entrance polls in Iowa, people who want someone who tells it like it is and is really going to shake up things in Washington, they're with Trump. And the challenge for Cruz and Rubio is to pick up some of that urgency in their own messaging, which Cruz, to a large extent, has. And I know people are annoyed by Cruz's flexibility on some of these things, but in his candidacy, he's kind of doing right what you would want a party to do when it has new potential supporters coming in. You want to find a way to accommodate them and bring them in the tent while you're not giving up the store on any of your core principles. And I think that's what Cruz has effectively been able to do so far. So you sound to be a little more optimistic than certainly before Iowa and certainly the tone of the symposium, which I think was, and I was too, kind of alarmed both about the phenomenon of Trump and about the receptivity to right. Trump among a lot of conservative, not just voters, but uh, conservative elites too, uh, writers, journal, uh, talk radio, uh, some politicians even. I mean, do, you remain, do you think that remains sort of a, a worrisome thing or was it just kind of a one-off weird moment and... Assuming, well, and of course, as you say, it's not the other thing we should talk about. It's not over, right? Trump right. could win New Hampshire, and then we're still dealing with the phenomenon. Right. Well, I think it's still worrisome. It um, two two levels of worry, right? A lot of our voters don't seem to have a particularly um, firm uh, devotion to our ideas as we understand them. And two, a lot of conservative opinion leaders turn out maybe to be a little less conservative than we would have thought. Now, maybe that now the, um, the Trump phenomenon is ebbing, but New Hampshire, New Hampshire looms. And you know, as a more secular, a more moderate um, state where independents usually play a big role in the primaries, 
he has a chance to recover there. And if you just look at the entrance polls in Iowa, you can see Cruz, how, how fairly cleanly Cruz, Rubio, and Trump divide up the Republican electorate into thirds. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little more since that's interesting going ahead. So how does that, let's assume, I guess, what I think is probably likely that the lesser candidates fall off and we end up either in New Hampshire itself or maybe in South Carolina, uh, or maybe March 1st in a three, basically a three-way race. Is that, is that what you, what are the thirds? How, do you, how would you characterize Well, them? so first of all, these, there's the ideological split and the polling right usually asks, very conservative, somewhat conservative, moderate. Cruz won the very conservatives, Rubio won the somewhat conservatives, and Trump won the moderates. Then you look at the characteristics. Cruz um, does very well, obviously, among evangelicals, does very well among voters whose top concern is, does he share my values? Trump um, does very well among voters who top concern, tell it like it is, and you're gonna change Washington, and no experience, you know, political experience doesn't mean anything to me, and I want someone outside of politics. Problem he has, that's only the people who, in Iowa at least, who wanted someone without political experience. It was about half the electorate, and he did really well. But among people who care about experience, he was just totally wiped out. And then Rubio wins on the electability argument. If what you care about most is winning in November, Rubio got 44% of those people. That was about 21% of the electorate. And then has the you know, this is clearly gonna be his message going forward. I'm the conservative who can win and unite the conservative movement. And the data seems to back that because he has the most um, consistent ideological support kind of across the board uh, among all ideological groupings, among uh, various ages, uh, um, et cetera. So, uh, and, uh, so, so Rubio will be kind of the more pragmatic oriented conservative. And people who really want change, they're either with Trump or Cruz, not so much with the Rubio. What's interesting, you and I, I think we've talked about this a lot over the last few months, the failure of the other candidates to adapt to Trump as much as one might have hoped and expected they right. would, take in the good parts and leave aside other parts. Right. It sounds like you feel that is happening with um, the Cruz and Rubio and their different ways are doing that, and that makes you pretty optimistic that the sort of, maybe we have seen peak Trump, even if he, I mean, he'll win some primaries probably, but that's sort of the, the real snowball, the real momentum, the real sense of this is a phenomenon. I wonder if that has been, I mean, one thinks maybe it's been punctured by Iowa. I certainly have said over and over that losing would make a huge difference, but I don't know, of course he surprised us so many times. Maybe he'll come back and win New Hampshire and suddenly we're back where we were two weeks ago. Yeah, I, I've made it a cardinal rule never to predict <laughs> <laughs> uh, peak Trump ever again. But the danger of him winning in Iowa, obviously, was that he could go two for two. And then you have a steamroller. And there doesn't seem as though there's going to be a steamroller. Right. But there could still be a very viable candidacy there. And no one had won Iowa and New Hampshire both, I think, since Gerald Ford in 76, who was a sitting president. I, he won Iowa by one point, I think won New Hampshire very narrowly as well. Right, right. So if Trump had managed to win Iowa and then win 20 points in New Hampshire, that would have been truly extraordinary. And as a was a test, just the, even the potential of that, was a testament to how he scrambled the usual coalition. And Ron Brownstein's written very acutely about this. You know, usually you have the, the candidate who dominates the evangelicals. You know, it's Huckabee, it's Santorum. It should have been Cruz this time, who won a lot of them, but Trump still won a lot of them. And if you slice it by education, that's where you see uh, Trump able to make inroads in that constituency. Cruz is winning the college-educated evangelicals, and Trump is winning the evangelicals without a college 
degree. And um, that, that's just sort of a different way of slicing the Republican electorate than we've seen in the past. Yeah. I, mean, I guess what struck me so much was also the, the, I mean, here we had the Tea Party, which I think we were pretty favorable to, and its core was an objection to progressivism in a good way, I think, and an appeal to the Constitution, which I think was a way of tying together a lot of different groups in the conservative tent. Libertarians, they have slightly different versions of the Constitution and constitutional law, traditionalists, libertarians, uh, populists who don't want the courts running everything, but actually you could all come together against kind of liberal imperial uh, judiciary. Um, Trump never, what most spooked me, I guess, was that Trump was the opposite of that. He had no yep. interest in the Constitution or constitutional forms or the things that I think is what conservatism kind of stands for against progressivism. And the extent of his appeal does make one wonder just, yeah, how, you know, how deep the conservative roots are in some elements of the, of the public that have been voting mostly conservative. Right. But. Yeah, he's definitely an a-constitutional, at the least, an a-constitutional candidate. And the rise of Trump kind of makes it astonishing that this anti-establishment um, feeling within the Republican Party was so long tethered to ideological purity. If you had told me that some of the same people who um, hated the establishment with a complete passion would now be on board or semi on board the Trump phenomenon, uh, you know, a, a guy who's basically a moderate deal maker, right. um, I, I never would have believed it. I never would have believed it possible. And I think part of what has gone on is the anti-establishment feeling has taken on a logic right. and a force of its own, where it was conservatives always been anti-establishment, right? Going back to the famous Buckley quote about the Boston phone book, because the elite institutions all hate us. Right. Um, but it's always been tethered to ideological goals. And what Trump has risked doing is severing the connection between the populism and the ideological goals. And there have been a lot of people who have been willing or, or much more willing to go along with that and much more friendly than you would have expected. And why do you think, again, uh, for, the, I mean, for the elites, I, I was struck by that too. Do you think just des losing two elections in a row, losing five out of six, the popular vote since 92, a sense of desperation, we just can't win with old-fashioned conservatism or traditional, even traditional conservative Republicans perhaps, and we just need to kind of embrace this thing even though we know at some level it's a little worrisome. It's some of that, do you think? Or? Yeah, I think all of the above. And it, it's very striking, right, that this political moment in the party feels so different than 1999, when you had the rise of George W. Bush, this ironic, you know, compassionate conservative. Right. And I think that moment was created by the fact that Bill Clinton accommodated the right, and we had great disdain for him in the late 90s for other <laughs> ethical and personal reasons, but he basically accommodated the rise of congressional Republicans. And with the implosion of Newt, there was a sense that the congressional Republicans had overreached. Well, now you had Obama who didn't adjust at all to the rise of a congressional majority, in fact, went further left right. and governed unilaterally, which uh, angered people greatly. And then there's this tremendous sense um, some fairly, some not, that Congress uh, and the Republican majority have underreached. And I, I think that's really um, put this kind of high-octane burner under the, the anti-establishment feeling that was already there uh, among some conservatives. Yeah, I think no Obama, no Trump, right? I mean, the, both the, the, the degree to which he got away with so many of these things and then the sense that the Republicans were uh, incapable or unwilling to fight him effectively and and then the sense that we need something different. I mean, that, that's always dangerous, right. I guess, in politics like in life. You know, you can be unhappy with your 
the people who are on your side who are supposed to be handling certain things, but if you throw them overboard and just flail around for something that looks good, you can really be in deeper trouble, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was one reason that a lot of people misread what was happening in the last week in Iowa, because everyone had just been so beaten down and conditioned right. to think that whatever Trump did right. was going to work. So, of course, he can skip the last debate and the only debate in Iowa, and he can call an accomplished female journalist basically a bimbo and brag about how he can shoot people on, on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Get away with it, which is why National Review staff is steering clear of Fifth yeah, Avenue. Because right. um, whereas normally you guys hang out, oh, the yeah. <laughs> conservative elitists in the highest, the most posh places on Fifth Avenue, I know, right? Um, and uh, it turns out all those things hurt him, or, or at least some of them must have, because the late break was completely um, against him. Yeah, the late break thing is pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's pretty dramatic, right? What was it? The late deciders were what? I mean. I think you know, the last from, from the last sure. week, um, if you decided in the last week you were Rubio or, or Cruz, and then as you got into the last days, you tended to be Rubio. Yeah. But I think another reason not, not to discount the Trump phenomenon and to um, try to learn from it and realize we need to keep the basic tendency within in the fold is this. It feels as though it's something new and completely different, and there's that aspect of it because he's a celebrity and a reality star. But I went back a couple months ago and read this wonderful essay by Walter Russell Mead and the old national interest about Jacksonianism. Right. And Trump is just a classic Jacksonian populist. So this is a tendency that's existed in America going back centuries. You know, they hate the elites, they distrust career politicians, they think we're being sold out to foreign um, influence. They don't care about the details of policy. They kind of think they're, they're simple and clear solutions to things. They're non-interventionists, but when they are, you know, they're going to kill terrorist families and bomb the S out of people. All that is, is just an a, a ingrained part of the American character. And conservatism is stronger when it includes that as part of its um, arsenal, but it can't be it in its entirety, obviously. I mean, I was relatively relaxed about Trump for that reason. I thought, you know, it's, it's just a myth among conservatives that somehow 51% you know, of the country is going to be ideologically conservative. That's just not the way the world works. 51% right. of the country is not ideologically anything ever, really. And therefore, they're going to have various inclinations and beliefs. And one of the big traditional American inclinations is a kind of Jacksonian populism. And conservatism can be successful when it absorbs it. And I thought Trump was just an absorbable thing. Now, I underestimated his staying power, though, as a personal, uh, as a phenomenon, as a political, you know, uh, vote, well, poll leader, if not vote getter yet. Uh, and, um, and that is dangerous. And I think I found it hard to explain to people why I'm so alarmed that Trump could actually be the nominee on the one hand, why I think that's so unsuitable and dangerous, uh, and I would have real difficulty even supporting him. Uh, on the one hand, but that I'm not entirely averse to aspects of Trumpism right. on the other. I mean, that, that I think is a tricky thing to explain, though, in politics. Yeah, I, I think I've felt pulled in the same direction where I'm quite anti-Trump, but in a lot of things I'm anti-anti-Trump. Right. So you end up being a, a little nuanced and pulled in, in two directions. But the key, obviously, is to be able to sort of absorb those instincts and educate them and uh, channel them and moderate them where necessary. Some of them are, don't need to be moderated, probably, but they need to be, I think, pushed right. in a more constitutional direction, at least at home, and probably in a more enlightened direction abroad. It's one thing to say we're, we lose too many wars. It's another thing to say, you know, we should be friends with Putin or something because right. he seems like a tough guy. Right. And it just shows, right, how important political leadership is, because clearly there was this kind of free-floating sentiment 
out there, but there wouldn't be Trumpism as we know it if not for Donald Trump and his unique skills and tapping into it and crystallizing it because it's really extraordinary that this tendency is represented almost nowhere in the Republican Party among elected officials. Uh, Maybe Dave Bratt or maybe some of of Jeff Jeff Sessions, but you know, Jeff Sessions is much more conservative than um, Donald Trump is. So it really took Trump and his his skills, for better or worse, to bring this this tendency out and and make something of it. I guess that's if it's an anti-establishment, anti-incumbent tendency. I guess the person outside politics has a certain natural ability to do that. And you know, Buchanan had never held elective office. Ross Perot never right. held elective office. Uh, Father Coughlin, I mean, you can go all the way back, I suppose, and left and right in some ways, and find people like that. Yeah, and that's, um, he, he's just, he's quite good at this at a certain right. level. If you look at the, the Muslim um, immigration ban, all those completely implausible, a plurality or majority of Republicans, at least at first blush, agreed with it. So he you know, reads that statement at that press conference, the world explodes. You know, he dominates media coverage on it, you know, at least for the next three or four days. And every single other Republican, including Ted Cruz, denounces him and disagrees with him. So he's created this enormous wedge issue between what popular opinion is on this issue and where every single Republican is in the country. So he gets to own that opinion completely on his own. And that's just, as I say, you could lock 10 top political consultants in a room for a day, and I'm not sure they could come up with, with something that's so devilishly clever. And part of this, you know, Trump's been doing this forever right. in a form in the business world, and I've actually been reading this biography of him, and it's how his dad operated as well. His dad wasn't as much of a public figure and wasn't quite as comfortable with it, but was obsessed in getting little notices in the newspapers in Brooklyn and Queens about his various projects and having um, ribbon-cutting ceremonies with pretty girls and that kind of thing, and buying off politicians to get favors on projects. And Trump is very much his father's son and just took that model and made it work on a a much um, bigger scale. I think the reality show gave him a huge understanding of TV and of dr- the drama of TV and how to milk that and play that, don't you think? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and then it's just there's so much to be said, unfortunately, in life for being shameless and just communicating confidence no matter what. If, if you look back to that CNBC debate when Becky Quick asked him about something he said about uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg in his written immigration plan, Trump said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never said that. And she didn't know her brief very well. I was like, okay, I apologize. I shouldn't have said anything. And then they got a commercial break. And of course, it's there in his written plan, which he has no idea because someone else wrote it. And I doubt he's even read it. And most of us and most candidates, if they were up on the stage and had been so embarrassed like that, you know, the serotonin levels would drop and you want to slink off the right. stage and you'd be humiliated forevermore. And Donald Trump, it, it didn't affect him one bit. He just keeps bulldogging through. Couldn't one say, let me, you're pretty cheerful today because of yesterday's results, and I am too, but if one wanted to be pessimistic, one could say, look, here we thought we had a vigorous conservative movement, good journals of opinion, think tanks, and all this. This fraud can come along, kind of a con man, and uh, almost win and be second in Iowa, may well win New Hampshire, a serious candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in a year where, you know, there were a ton of well-qualified by conventional lights and quite conservative. Candidates, not just Rubio and Cruz, who are still in it, but you know people from 
Rick Perry to Scott Walker and all, and they all get blown out. Isn't that a little worrisome, A? And then B, and these are two separate questions, but you can answer both. Um, what about Bernie Sanders? I mean, we can make fun of the Democratic Party and the liberals for having huge problems on their side, but the fact that he got, he must have gotten, I was looking at the numbers, he got some unbelievable percentage of the y y younger voters on the Democratic side, but he must have gotten as a total percentage of the younger voters in Iowa, since I think the Democratic and Republican turnout are about similar. You know, certainly more young people voted for Bernie Sanders than for any other candidate by, I'm gonna say by better than two to one probably, maybe three or four to one when you think about it, right? That's kind of bad for us, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, why are all these 25-year-olds, you know, thinking that socialism is the wave of the future? Isn't that kind of something we we should have been able to disabuse them of over the last bunch of years? Yeah, what know. are we doing? Yeah, I mean, I know. Um, well, the Trump thing is obviously worrisome. I think it's it's understandable and explainable in a lot of ways, which we've discussed. And you know, just performance is very important in, in politics. And yeah. Scott Walker, although very honorable man and a very accomplished record in Wisconsin, the performance level wasn't there. Jeb Bush, who you know, had an awesome record in Florida, is just not a good performer as these guys. And it's very telling that what appears to be the top three candidates at the moment, I think objectively, are the best performers yeah, in, in the field. Yeah. And um, Bernie, yeah, what the, uh, the entrance polls said among voters under 29, what, 84%? And so that's it's, of the Democrats. Yeah. But it must mean if half the vote is Democrats and 40% of all the young people in Iowa yeah, it's, <laughs> voted, um, voted for Bernie Sanders. It's, it's quite something. And it goes to something we talked about a lot right in the Reagan years, which you don't need to be young necessarily to appeal to young voters. Right. Reagan won the youth vote. But Sanders just has this passionate uh, sincerity. And although I, of course, reject all of his programs, there's something endearing about it. I mean, we talk about their establishment on the Republican side, but this is one man against a machine that's completely arrayed against them, and not just the Clintons, every single apparatus and interest group in the Democratic Party is against this guy, and he came within, you know, 0.2 percent of beating her in Iowa, which just goes to her extraordinary weakness. You can understand losing to a once-in-a-generation political talent in 2008. What is the excuse to almost right. losing to the 74-year-old socialist Bernie Sanders? I mean, if she is the nominee, she's awfully vulnerable, don't you think? I do. And, and that's one reason, you know, it's the conventional wisdom that Ted Cruz is unelectable. I don't buy it at all, because she's, she's a very weak candidate. There, we have economic turbulence, and uh, it's an evenly divided electorate. And so the, the possibility of a Goldwater-style blowout is, is not very real. And on top of all that, Ted Cruz has run a really shrewd campaign. And maybe all he can do is primary campaigns, because it's basically what he's been doing since he got into the, the Senate race five years ago, is, is running in a conservative primary in effect. But I think it speaks to a, a level of um, agility and smarts that will be transferable into a general election. And, and someone like Cruz, who is so ambitious and has been thinking about this so long, he, he is going to be very careful. And he's not just going to immolate himself in a general election. Well, let's talk about I think, Cruz and Rubio, since you've followed them closely. And I have, too. I think, uh, it's interesting. But then I want to come back, actually, I have one more thought on Trump and Sanders, uh, which I think that was, you raised some interesting questions about. So 
Yeah, Cruz, I very much agree. I mean, people think he's not like Goldwater. Whatever he is like, I mean, right. he may have problems and be problematic in certain ways, but he's a very calculating, disciplined yes. person who has thought a lot about how to win both the primary. And it's not like he's a fool and he doesn't understand general elections are different. How he does pivots, whether it's like Nixon, you know, that's a different question. Um, but I, I don't, uh, yeah, I think he's not likely to just blindly right. keep driving the car, you know, down right. some road that's going nowhere. He may not adjust correctly. He may not be able to pull it off because he's got other liabilities as a politician. But I thought that speech last night was kind of interesting in Iowa by Cruz. Everyone panned it and didn't like it. But I thought you could see in it, um, and it's one of the few times I've actually watched one of these speeches through. I mean, not watch all of them. They finally cut away from it at 32 minutes. It was kind of, everyone, the conventional wisdom, it, was Ill, it went too long. It was a foolish use of a missed opportunity to give a concise 10 or 15 minute speech. But I thought it he was clearly thinking about how to humanize himself, as they say. Mm -hmm. And he explicitly, did you see the part where he explicitly said something about, I want Democrats to vote for me yeah. in the general election? Yeah. I thought that was like almost pivoting to the general election message right. after the very first primary, knowing that he needs to have a general election message to, be, to convince Republicans that he's electable in the next few primaries. Right, yeah. Um, I guess a little conventional on this one, because I, I don't understand why he took so long. No, no. I, this is like minor right, stuff, and right. it was a little rambling, and at least some of it seemed to be geared to a, a message that you would need to win the Iowa caucuses, which he'd just done, right. but I'm, obviously he has an eye to South Carolina. Um, but this, this is a guy who everything he does is thought through, and that's one reason some people don't like him, because they can consider him too careful and calculating, but discipline is, is part of the name of the game, and it, um, a lack of discipline is one of the things that uh, probably undid Trump in, in Iowa. It you know, feels very refreshing and it's new and it's entertaining until you, you step in it and then you've thrown away you know, a year worth of effort and that's the kind of mistake. He's not flawless, but that's not the kind of mistake Cruz is gonna make. And Rubio, awfully talented. What are you? Very what are you talented. Um, I would say my, my hesitation about Rubio is still to me he occasionally feels a little light or a little tinny. And although he surged in the right time in Iowa, it's still not clear whether he's really going to catch fire. But um, he, he's, a, uh, he, he's thought through an agenda that should have some working class appeal. He never seems to really talk about it in those terms. You know, he has a very controversial tax plan within the right, right. Um, largely because it has this enormous child tax credit, I'm not sure I've ever heard him say, my tax plan will be the best for every working family in America, which is sort of um, strange. It's a little bit more of a, a typical kind of, as we were talking about earlier, kind of Reagan-esque uplift message. Um, but there, there's no doubt about his, his, um, his talent and his potential. And um, if, you, if you just look at the, the broad appeal within the party um, and you know, looking at that blind without considering any of the other candidates or some of the intangibles, you'd say this is the guy best positioned to win the nomination. I mean, I do think if you just came down from Morris and you could put aside Trump for a minute, which is a big thing to put aside, I will grant, and say, okay, Democratic side, Hillary and Sanders, 68 and 74 years old, very conventional, tired, liberal establishment, and socialist. And on the Republican side, two 45-year-old, pretty dynamic, impressive, talented senators. I don't know. It's a pretty good matchup. And the 
Obama's not too popular as the incumbent. Uh, and Hillary's got ethical issues with emails. I don't know. It just looks, you know, like a pretty good matchup for whichever Republican runs against whichever Democrat. Yeah, and you, you put it very compellingly in a, a tweet. This is how we all absorb our information like, yeah, right. these days. But what did you say? That Bernie Sanders was born before Pearl Harbor, right. and both Cruz and Rubio were born what landmark to you? After, after the, the moon Kennedy landing. After, after the moon, moon landing. landing, yeah, right, yeah. right. It's kind of amazing, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you can see, you know, it's much too early to uh, speculate about VPs, but never too early for you, Bill, and never Thank too you. early for you to pick the winner yeah, of, right. of the actually Veep stakes. But you could see how a Cruz Rubio ticket would bring together the party and create potentially kind of a Clinton Gore nineteen ninety two kind of feel, where you're doubling down on young and, in the, this case, um, immigrant background to create a new feel for the party. And I guess one lesson I take from this conversation, just you know, kind of thinking out loud, is, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I think you were very good at saying, politics is politics. You know, one can sometimes overinterpret things and, you know, have metaphysical interpretations about the nature of conservatism, the nature of populism in America today, in the 21st century. And sometimes it's, you know, what Trump hit the right, hit the right court at the right moment is an unusually talented demagogue with. 12 years of reality TV experience in a field in which other people kind of bombed out. Maybe they didn't have to, but they just did. Walker, Perry, Bush. He was also, Bush helped Trump hugely, I think, don't you think, by the specter of another Clinton-Bush yes. race, which mm -hmm. led to that kind of anti-establishment sentiment. So I think that's a very good reminder that, and um, which is why you have to beat them. I mean, you've, you wrote this, you know, we can have all the intellectual arguments you want, but at the end of the day, to deal with a political problem, you need to defeat it politically. Right. <laughs> you know. It's not political philosophy at that point. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And on that front, I guess just, so do you think, I mean, you think odds are we've dodged the bullet on Trump? I mean, you, you, would, you would bet that he won't be the nominee? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, I, I, I still think there's some significant chance, yeah. and it depends on how well he does in New Hampshire. And then if he, if he can win New Hampshire and win South Carolina, which both of these are conceivable, then we're staring down the, the barrel of the So it remains a political fight. I mean, in that yeah. respect, the political we, people, the, on the political side, the donors, the politicians, the, the public, the advocates need to be yeah. fighting, not, and, not, and, not, not, not sighing relief at this point. Right. And what you say about politics and, and um, you know, how t important timing is. Ted Cruz kind of knew, I think, if he didn't go this, this time, four years, he'd be the establishment. You know, and uh, he, ha he had to go now. And if Trump hadn't hit right at, at this moment, he did. You know, would he have had this effect if he had run four years ago? Well, probably not. Will he have it, would he have it if he waited? Probably not. Timing is everything. And just these little bumps in the road can make such a big difference and literally change history. Now, we don't know really objectively, right, what the effect was of Trump skipping that debate. But maybe it was worth five points in right. Iowa. And maybe we'd be having a totally different conversation and talking about a potentially totally different Republican Party if that had um, gone the other way. I think that's such an important point because uh, maybe uh, because I think people like us, especially I'm probably even more guilty of this than most, having studied political philosophy at all, one always wants to read into the quotidian events of, of the day and the week, you know, sort of deep analysis and meaning. And, and of course, there is some. And many of our favorite contributors to National Review and the Weekly Standard are very good at teasing that out, but it's also the case that sometimes it is about this particular decision, sometimes made impulsively, which has this little effect, which swings only a few thousand voters. Right. What are we talking about in Iowa, you know? Yeah. And suddenly the whole dynamic changes, and you know, that really is an important reminder, I think, about political life. It'll be interesting to see 
you alluded to this just a second ago, just what the establishment does, because they, they were so on the sidelines, except for the Our Principles pack, which was hitting Trump for about seven days and appears to have made a difference. But otherwise, members of the establishment just hate Cruz right. so much, fear Cruz so much, they'd, they'd in, in a way, been pushed at least towards the arm arms of Donald Trump. And you had a lot of establishment people and especially establishment people backing Rubio rooting for Trump in Iowa, which I thought was extremely short-sighted. But I wonder if Cruz's victory in Iowa will keep those people on the sidelines at least, at least a little bit longer. And uh, it just just because they they fear Cruz more than Trump. Don't you think Trump. they'd be crazy not to just rally behind Rubio from their point of view? I mean, if assuming they don't want, don't really want Trump and yeah, it's totally. Don't like I, yeah, Cruz. I think it's been crazy. It's surprising how along. little. I would say that's another weird. Again, I don't think there's some macro necessarily uh, interpretation of this. Of it, just mis miscalculations or or particular loyalty. The Bush thing. If the Bush thing hadn't happened the way it did, and they all signed up, and there was a hundred million dollars invested in Bush, and then he goes nowhere, and then they feel paralyzed because they can't ditch Bush. I mean, it's funny yeah. how many of these. Decisions are very contingent, you know, and yeah. uh, not, maybe now they will get behind Rubio and you'll have more of a classic, you know, I mean, F Cruz Rubio feels like a familiar Republican primary. Right. <laughs> I don't quite, which, you know, it's not clear who wins. It's not clear. It's not quite like, like the different models one has, whether Romney Santorum or Ford Reagan or Bush Reagan or, you know, but at least it feels like something we've, right. we've and, seen and, before. And Cruz, for all that people talk about him being anti-establishment, Completely recognizable conservative Republican that you right. could have, you know, we could have had any time over the last thirty years. But I thought Steve Hayes wrote an excellent piece about Bush and, and the effect he's had on this race and providing this foil for Donald Trump, and then gathering at the beginning this this massive mound of money that's become kind of a political Death Star that's been dumped on Marco Rubio's head. So as of this point in the race, the most establishment, quote unquote money has been spent yeah. against Marco Rubio, which yeah. is just insane. And, you know, as of uh, seven days ago, no one had really tried to put a dent in Donald Trump whatsoever. You know, this, this guy was going to take over, uh, you know, execute a hostile takeover of the Republican Party with almost no resistance and with a lot of the consultant and lobbying class saying, you know what, we can live with it. And I, and I guess one last thing I'd say about both Trump and uh, both Cruz and Rubio, which I think is impressive about the two of them, Rubio had, what, $15 million spent against him in Iowa, I think, by the Bush Super PAC, or maybe Bush Super PAC and others. Uh, and then was still, he took the hits and probably suppressed his vote for quite a while, but he still was able to come out at the end, which suggests it's a pure matter of mm -hmm. kind of political strength. There's a kind of appeal he's able to make to people to win votes there in the last few days. And Cruz, who had, was under assault from a lot of people, a lot of paid advertising against him, Trump really went after him the last two weeks. Yeah. And again, probably did damage, I think, on the Canadian yeah. uh, uh, birth, you know, idiocy and all that. Um, and then uh, the governor goes after him on ethanol and all, and he showed a, a kind of toughness. I'm not meaning, I don't really mean psychologically, but almost like the way a, a racehorse kind of, you know, yeah. barrels through trouble, you know, and then still is going strong. Right. It seems to me those two have shown real political Yep. skill. I mean, that, that is one definition of political skill is the kind of you take these hits and then you get yeah. stalled out a little bit, but then you're sort of able to keep on going. Well, the Bush people thought, and they'll probably deny this now, 
the reason why they're dumping so much on Rubio in Iowa, they thought they could catch him in Iowa. And there, there was a period, maybe two month, weeks ago or so now, when Rubio was dipping, and it looked as though it was possible. Yeah. And then he stabilized, and then he took off at the end. And Cruz, I, I was sort of gnashing my teeth. It's like, ethanol is such a stupid thing to win a caucus, to lose a caucus over, especially if you're going to lose it to Donald Trump. Right. You know, he's been flexible on other stuff. Why couldn't he have been flexible yeah. on this? But he, he stood his ground. And he, the incumbent governor was doing all he could to defeat him and the incumbent governor's lobbyist son. And he, as you say, he battled through it. And it was really impressive. And I guess the final point I'd make is sort of so the flip side, the Sanders side. And this is maybe a, another conversation, a longer conversation about, I think it does show the extent to which, on the one hand, conservatism as a movement, I'd say, you'd have to say, just going way back to, to Bill Buckley's founding of National Review in 55. It's a pretty amazingly successful thing. It's really contributed a lot to American politics, to American history, the Cold War, uh, revitalizing of various traditions, constitutionalism and others. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the total rout of us and our friends and educational institutions and, and some other parts of the culture, you know, not that it's our fault, but anyway, it, it is what it is, but it does produce, I think, a situation where Bernie Sanders can get, I'm really a little rattled by that. I mean, if we were only getting a lot of Democratic votes, well, fine. I mean, I'd be tempted, honestly, against Hillary Clinton to vote for Bernie Sanders just because he's so much more, seems more attractive as a person almost, you know, one of the years you get to vote against that whole Clinton machine. But the idea that young people are sort of entranced by the thought of socialism at, I know. It, in 2016 is a little unnerving. And, and the so polls maybe, showing a 45% of people in Iowa say, consider themselves socialists or 45% of Democrats or something. Right. It's, it's astonishing. So and, that's, a, that's a bigger task for us, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, and the parties are still major institutions in American life, and you, ha you have the uh, Democrats taken over by that tendency. It's not a good thing. It's really kind of that he's, he's the American um, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And, and people say Corbyn can never win. Well, you know, you get a recession and a few of these accents of history we've talked about bouncing uh, the wrong way. Who's to say he can't? And on that note, of, uh, the contingency, the, you know, that's, that's a deep conservative truth, I think, the contingency of history and of, and of politics. Um, thanks, Rich, for, for joining me today. Thanks so much, Bill. And thank you for joining us on Conversations.